Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. A question that I only get asked about three times an hour, is, are we all set for another roaring 20s? As we escape blinking from the confines of our own basements and cellars into this brave new world, are we going to be looking at another decade of wild partying? Or are our impressions of that wild decade just made up and based on watching Leonardo DiCaprio in The Great Gatsby? Were the roaring 20s a thing? What were they like? And might we get another piece of it a hundred years later, by coincidence, as we hopefully begin to return to a more normal life after this pandemic? I've got one of the more uh, brilliant people that I have on this podcast regularly, Professor Sarah Churchwell. She's chair in the Public Understanding of Humanities at the University of London. She's written about the 1920s. Uh, You've heard her on this podcast before. We talked about American fascism and whether it's useful or right to Uh, refer to that in its historical context. And now she joins me again to talk about the 20s. And it turns out they were a bit of a thing. And, you know, we might see a bit of a repeat. So it's exciting stuff. This will get you in the mood as we come out of the Easter weekend, as we move here in the UK anyway, towards loosening of the restrictions. And the US, as restrictions have been loosened in many states, this might get us back in the mood for wild, licentious socialising. Only when it's safe to do so, folks. Listen to your public health authorities. If you wish to listen to other podcasts that Sarah Churchwell's been in, well then, we got plenty. Right over on historyhit.tv, our digital history channel, the Netflix for history. Ooh, we've got so much exciting stuff coming up for you. I can't wait to tell everyone about it. Uh, Head over there, you get to watch lots of documentaries on history. You get to listen to uh, Professor Sarah Churchwell and many other wonderful historians. It's got it all. It's a history lover's paradise. It's like the 1920s every day on historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, enjoy Professor Churchwell. Sarah, thank you very much for coming back onto this podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, this is the question that everyone's walking around at the moment, asking me, asking you, asking anyone with any connection to history. So I've come to the Oracle herself. (laughs) Are the Roaring Twenties like, was it a thing? Is it, or is it just made up? <laughs> it's a really good question. And actually, you're the first one to put it to me in exactly those terms about whether, you know, did they see it as the Roaring Twenties? And as you say, was it a thing? It was a thing. And they did see it as a thing. By the early to mid-1920s, they were referring to it as the Roaring Twenties. And they very much felt that. And, and I mean, by about 1924, it was a kind of popular phrase. 
So they very much felt that something was in the air and that there was a change in the energy in the zeitgeist and that it was worthy of giving a name like the jazz age, like the roaring 20s, that it was an epoch and that it had kind of discernible characteristics and that there had been a kind of rupture and that in the late teens, and of course, the First World War was the obvious breaking point. But also, as we've all just learned ourselves, the end of a pandemic was also a breaking point. And they saw this kind of clear sense that, and in America, all kinds of things changed in the early 1920s. So there was this clear sense that things were starting over and that they were ready to roar. I gotta say, Sarah, I feel I feel ready to roar. <laughs> um, obviously, it was pandemic, but the First World War as well. I mean, it was uh, it, they were bouncing back from a heck of a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And so, look, I mean, yeah, the, the First World War is the obvious one, right? And it's the one that's always been understood as the starting point of the Roaring Twenties. So, if anybody had asked, if we'd had this conversation two years ago, I don't think we would have even we might have mentioned the Spanish flu. And I always tended to bring it into the American context because the United States entered the war so late and um, its casualties were so much fewer, you know, its death rate was so much lower. And America did lose more citizens to the Spanish flu than it did to the war. So our experience of the First World War was different. But with all of that said, it was always a given that it was after the First World War, the war to end all wars, the war to make the world safe for democracy, all of the kinds of expectations and the weight that had been put in the transatlantic context on that war, and then the, the kinds of revolutions, the social and cultural revolutions that it brought about, the political revolutions that it brought about. Like we all know, I mean, the Bolshevik revolution was happening at the same time, right? I mean, so the ways in which there were these major, major political upheavals that had repercussions uh, globally, and certainly in the United States and in Britain, where people were talking about the Roaring Twenties, there were huge upheavals. But I think what's interesting to me now is that we've now been reminded by our own upheaval to add the pandemic to that list. When you look back at the Roaring Twenties, is it artistic and cultural? Is it like an elite? Is it like the way that initially the 1960s were quite a kind of elite opening up? Or is this something that was reflected in uh, on Main Street as well across America in terms of, of in terms of economic, in terms of material advances? like the economic health of America. I mean, is this something that was genuinely a national event? Well, it was certainly a national event, but it wasn't necessarily in the ways that we're used to thinking of it in terms of the cliches and the kind of stereotypes that we have. Um, and I take the most obvious one, the boom, right? Everybody thinks of the Roaring Twenties as roaring because there was an economic boom. You just refer to that. And the idea that, you know, after the war, everything exploded and the stock market took off. That was true by the kind of, pushing up to the mid-1920s. It started in about 22, started to gain traction in 23, 24. But when you're actually talking about the very beginning of the era, when they were indeed starting to think about the jazz age and, and this idea that the tw something was looking different in the 20s, there was no economic boom in the US. There was actually a deflationary recession. What Fitzgerald, Scott, I, all my references are to Scott Fitzgerald, as you know, and Scott Fitzgerald later called it a baby recession in that it was a, um, a short-lived recession, but it was a sharp one. And of course, as we all know, when you live through a recession, you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know how. So it's only in retrospect that it looks like it was, you know, short lived. The point is, at the beginning of the 1920s, even for the elites, there was great, great uncertainty. There was an enormous amount of concern in the U.S. about the so-called Bolshevik Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the first Red Scare. We're used to thinking about McCarthyism in the 1950s, but that was the second Red Scare. And the first Red Scare in 1919 was very serious as well. 
There were also major race riots in 1919, incredibly important, again, to the current context. I mean, we're talking, indeed, as the trial of the policeman who killed George Floyd gets underway in the U.S. So there were um, similar kinds of social and political upheavals happening in the U.S. And, and at the beginning, it was a time of great uneasiness. This idea that everybody just had this party and they were ready, like it was all great and they were making all this money and everybody was ready to have fun. That didn't take hold for, for several years. And then it became pretty hysterical pretty quickly. In terms of how it felt on Main Street, I think the revolution was much more of a social revolution. And the things we need to remember about the real kind of point of demarcation in the U.S. that marked the beginning of the 1920s was that two constitutional amendments were passed in 1920. And think about how big that is. Remember how hard it is to pass a constitutional amendment in the U.S. and how much people talk today about the kinds of, you know, even ending things like the filibuster or trying to get statehood. Um, to pass two amendments in a given year actually gives you an indication of how much change was already happening. And those two amendments, of course, which both came into law in 1920, were the passage of the Volstead Act, which began prohibition, which came into law in January 1920, and then women getting the vote, which came into law in August 1920. So what you have is a year in which kind of the nation takes two sharp turns in opposite directions, right? One towards progressivism and one towards authoritarianism. And that was one of the things that really marked the change on Main Street was women having the vote. That marked the change for real people's lives long before any talk of the stock market, you know, taking off began. And of course, prohibition changed things culturally in huge ways, not just in terms of how much you drank, but in terms of Americans' relationship to the law. And of course, what would become the explosion of organized crime, of, uh, you know, the violence of, of Al Capone, all the famous gangsterism that, that took hold again in the mid to later 1920s. All of that stuff is kind of starting to percolate, I guess, from the beginning. And that's what people were aware of. And our idea, our kind of crude ideas about the boom, again, they didn't take hold until later, and they were sort of the least of it, as far as ordinary Americans were concerned. Now, you and I, we like to look at everything in our lives in terms of the kind of high politics of it. Like, you know, your and my ability to go out and have fun in a pub is often linked to the uh, performance of progressive candidates in the polls in the US, for example, right? So, but to what extent was this kind of roaring 20s? You, you mentioned the politics there, the Red Scare. Do you see this as something that does follow the kind of big political changes? Or is there something cultural going on that, that is actually independent from those things, whether it's new music, new forms of art that, that actually, dare I whisper, aren't dependent on the kind of plate shifting in D.C.? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that in, in the case of the 20s, you're really looking at a really interesting interaction between the two. And if anything, maybe that tension was productive because on the one hand or you know, creative tension because on, uh, for the society. Because on the one hand, as, as you've just suggested, it was, you know, a huge efflorescence of um, American creative arts and particularly of indigenous art forms. It was the moment in which American culture as an idea, as so it's something we might start to think about in American high culture, was born. Up until that point, the United States, American artists had very much had a conscious inferiority complex in regards to, in relation to Europe. The 
cultural conversations of the time were very consciously um, asking the question of whether America had an art form that was worthy of the name. Was there such a thing as American literature? Was there such a thing as American painting? And D.H. Lawrence's classic book, Studies in Classic American Literature, came out in 1922, and he called American literature a false dawn. It was something that hadn't yet started. And yet we look back on it and we see, you know, this explosion of amazing American art and we think jazz and we think the Harlem Renaissance and we think modernist painting, we think O'Keefe, we think Stieglitz, we know what they were doing. But at the time, there were all of these questions about, did America have what it takes, as it were, to stand up on the world stage? And these were questions that American artists were consciously asking each other. It very much shapes the cultural uh, kind of conversation and debates of the time. If you actually go in and look at the dig into the periodical culture, into their correspondence. Scott Fitzgerald, as a young man at this time, was writing his friends, you know, saying, I think we might have an American art and then saying, I know you think that sounds ludicrous, but I think we could be the cultural center soon. You know, and so that that's exactly what was starting to happen in the 20s on the artistic side was this sense that America, American art was gaining momentum and gaining confidence. And they were ready to start making those kinds of claims. And that particularly in the case of literature, that, you know, England in particular was going to have to sit up and take notice and listen to what was said, that the influences were beginning to be shared much more. There was a circulation and a traffic of ideas that was starting to circulate after the war. And of course, transatlantic travel became easier. Boats were faster. People could go back. And it was also less expensive. People could go back and forth. And obviously, as, as you know, everybody who's listening to this knows, so many Americans like Fitzgerald and Hemingway made their way uh, to Europe, particularly to Paris. But then they made their way back and they would go back and forth. It isn't the case that they just left and, and lived in exile. So those influences were very much kind of starting to pervade American culture and society. And in particular, even, you know, into popular art and popular culture. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the Roaring Twenties. More after this. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game, from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Then, at the same time, you had a deeply conservative politics. You had a deeply conservative government. Um, it was a Republican era from 1920 till FDR was elected in 1932. Twelve years of Republican governance and a Republican governance that was, as it would be today, uh, very friendly to business um, to the point of being friendly to corrupt business. <laughs> It was a wildly deregulated market. It was an anything goes market. That phrase absolutely applies to the 1920s. So you have on the one hand, this very conservative political moment and um, pro-business moment and, um, and very conservative in terms of its racial politics. And this was the moment of America's most restrictive immigration practices. This is the moment when America first as a slogan takes off. It was associated with eugenics. So white supremacism was very front and center. And of course, it's also the time of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. So it's a very long answer, but it's a complex time, right? But maybe that, um, in a nutshell, actually kind of um, encapsulates it most clearly is that on the one hand, you have the Harlem Renaissance. And on the other hand, you have the second Ku Klux Klan. And those are happening at exactly the same time. And that's what the Roaring Twenties was like. Um, so I'm sure lots of people are asking you, when it comes to looking at the individual sources and, and what these artists are saying and thinking, and consumers of art, there's lots of people that I talk to at the moment seem to be conflicted between being a bit scared about getting back out there and, and re-engaging and getting things in the diary, and kind of going, I'm going to go and do the things that I took for granted for too long. You know, I'm going to travel and, and take time off and visit amazing places, because I'm now aware that this might not go on forever, the, the, the shutters might come down. Were there similar conversations going on back in the 20s? Yeah, absolutely. And again, particularly in the United States, I think, and I'm going to have reference to Fitzgerald again here because I think that he articulates it so well. Um, and there were other people who, who, um, certainly expressed this idea, but, you know, he just kind of puts it beautifully for us in his famous essay, Echoes of the Jazz Age, which he wrote in 1931, looking back on the decade. And in that essay, he says that, that it was a decade um, marked by the restless energy in America that had not been expended in the war. And that's a line that's easy to skip over. I have, I've paraphrased there. That's not the exact line. He put it more beautifully than that, but that's the gist of it. And the point is, is that it's easy to miss that. But whereas in Europe, there's that sense of devastation and exhaustion and bitterness and horror and trauma and how do we rebuild? In the U.S., everybody had geared up for that kind of conflict, but we entered so late 
that there was this sense that everybody had built up to something and then that was almost anticlimactic, if you can say such a thing about the First World War. Certainly for somebody like Fitzgerald it was because he never even saw combat. So he was he was in the army and then didn't get shipped overseas. And he was one of many that he knew who had an experience like that. So this sense that you're completely geared up for it and then nothing happens and that energy had to go somewhere. And so in the U.S. there was this sense that all the doors blew open and they were just ready to do whatever it was that they wanted to do. And that was the kind of sense of the of the young generation taking over because they were still certainly... Um, they felt betrayed by the older generation. They felt betrayed by the promise that this was the war to end all wars when clearly it wasn't. They could see the betrayals of the Treaty of Versailles. They were warning of the problems that that was likely to create. Writers like Walter Lippmann writing in Vanity Fair and the New Republic, um, you know, in the early 1920s saying this settlement is not going to work. This is going to create huge problems in Europe and therefore huge problems for America. So they were anxious. They could see just as well as, you know, as educated Europeans could that this was really problematic. And their response was, you know, was absolutely carpe diem. It was absolutely live fast and die young, grab it while you can. And prohibition in the U.S. wildly exacerbated that. It just kind of made it exponentially more powerful. It became even more daring. For us, it will be daring and exciting to have a hug and have a pint when I see in the pub. But if that was illegal, that would be like super exciting. Exactly. Exactly. And it was, you know, it was this it was this amazing experiment in backfiring. Right. I mean, if you ever want to look at a great social experiment that backfires, just look at what happened with prohibition, because the, one of the first things that it did was, you know, it had never been socially acceptable for women to drink in public in the U.S. any more than it had been in the U.K., and with prohibition, which was supposed to make drinking less socially acceptable, it made it more socially acceptable. And suddenly young women were drinking in public for the first time. And of course, it, it came along with the 19th Amendment, with getting the vote, with this sense of new independence. It also came along with new kinds of sexual independence, reproductive uh, right well, not reproductive rights yet, but reproductive conversations were happening and basically new reproductive products, you know, reproduction control was available more widely. You could get condoms in drugstores, which you hadn't been able to, you know, do before. Women could get diaphragms, which they hadn't been able to do before. And indeed, you know, abortions became more widely available in urban centers as well. So there was this sense of new sexual freedom, of new economic freedom, of new political freedom. And then you throw in a prohibition against drinking, you know, and, and we're seeing this today. I mean, it's really, I think, you know, really dangerous. Um, and so I want to be clear that I'm not in any way suggesting that we should glamorize or, or romanticize it in this way. But people are talking about, you know, kind of, uh, and have been talking about kind of speakeasy parties during this pandemic, during lockdown, right? But it, there, the speakeasy was just that you were having a drink when you weren't supposed to. Now it is, you know, potentially, obviously spreading a pandemic. So that sense of the glamour of the illicit is still very much with us, people thinking that that will make it even cooler. Yeah, unfortunately, this time around, you might end up killing your grandma. Exactly, exactly. So... I guess I want to finish up by saying, you know, historians are always really cautious with parallels and say, it's just like the 1920s. Now that we've had fun with it and we've, and we've talked and I've learned a huge amount about the 1920s, is it useful? Is it useful? If, is it just annoying when your friends ask if it's going to be about the 1920s? Or, or is it a kind of useful conversation to have to think about the next few years and obviously think about what happened at the end of the 20s? I mean, we should probably always be on guard for that. To right. Massively unregulated markets destroying the economy. But is this a useful conversation? 
Well, I think it is, or I probably would have said I was too busy for it, to be honest with you, Dan. <laughs> um, and it's not just because I get to talk about my pet subject and Fitzgerald, my pet writer and everything. It's because I actually, you know, I do think this is a useful conversation because the parallels are very strong. Not that history is circular, not that it will predict what happens. Of course not. Already, the way the pandemic has played out is completely different, right? They didn't have a global lockdown. So the differences are very, very obvious and very, very stark. But the broad parallel about human nature is often what we can take from history. And that's where I think that there is a lot to be learned from here. And to that point that that we began with, of just that sense of unreleased energy and people kind of running amok. And that, that may look like fun in retrospect, but there's also an edge of hysteria to it and an edge of huge anxiety that undergirds it. That might lead to a great creative outpouring again. That would be an upside for us if our Roaring Twenties can lead to a great creative outpouring. Um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had another Harlem Renaissance or its equivalent somewhere else in the world? If we, you know, if we had another explosion of, of modern art where something was really reinvented in that way, if those energies could could head in that direction. And of course, it was a great progressive outpouring as well in a lot of ways. So there's lots to try to learn from in terms of thinking about how we might harness that energy more constructively, which again, I think is one of the lessons we try to take from history is see where where we're in parallel positions and we're at a crossroads. You know, if we go that way, it might go wrong. And maybe we try that way just to see. And so, you know, I think that we are on the cusp of another roaring 20s. And I don't make these kinds of parallels all that lightly. It won't play out the same way. Of course not. But are we likely to to open the doors and roar as soon as um, as soon as lockdown ends? I think, you know, Pretty obviously, everybody is ready to roar. <laughs> Thank you so much for roaring on this podcast as ever, so it's totally brilliant. Um, what is? Uh, how can people stay in touch with your your writing and and your your brilliant thought? Oh, uh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. I actually did have an essay on some of these topics in the New York Review of Books last year about Fitzgerald, of course. If anybody's interested, and you know, as ever, I'm kind of tweeting and stuff. But um, I'm trying to finish a book, which is set. A li- it's a little bit later. It's in the 30s. You'll be amazed to hear. I've moved slightly further afield, um, trying to get that done. So um, I don't think anything particularly new in the pipeline until that's finished. Well, thank you very much for, for coming back on. Well, thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review. Purge yourself. Give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.